This podcast is brought to you by SaaStock 2016, Europe's premier B2B SaaS conference, targeting early to growth stage SaaS founders and a global VC community on the 22nd of September at the RDS in Dublin. Early birds tickets are available now at www.sastock.com. That's S-A-A-S-T-O-C-K.com. Welcome, SaaS people, to the SaaS Revolution show, uh, bringing you front row seats to the SaaS Revolution, courtesy of SaaScribe Media. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Alex Duma, and uh, super excited to be joined today uh, by a CEO of a, a company based out of uh, Minnesota in the US that perhaps is uh, not as uh, heralded as uh, some of the, I guess, kind of Silicon Valley uh, peers but uh, someone that's reached uh, real impressive milestones and uh, has a great story to, uh, to tell. So welcome to the show, Scott Byrne, CEO of Gov Delivery. It's great to be here, Alex. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, no. Super excited to have you on. So now, Scott, I, I've uh, obviously in preparation for uh, today's uh, episode, you know, done a bit of research, uh, you know, further into yourself and, uh, and to Gov Delivery. But, uh, you, you know, for those that perhaps haven't heard of uh, Gov Delivery, can you, can you tell the audience the origin story and, and you know, what Gov Delivery does? Sure. Uh, you know, if I, if I start at the end and go back to the beginning... Um, Gov Delivery is the is the most widely used communications platform, uh, digital communications platform for the public sector, um, basically serving governments of all sizes, ranging from little little parks to the largest public agencies, uh, both here and in the UK. So we have a lot of clients in the UK mm-hmm. and um, a few in mainland Europe, and they're using us basically to build audience and communicate with people. the The way we got into it was. Really going back um, all the way to 1996, I was on a I was on a college campus in New Hampshire, and it was one of the very first connected campuses. So we had this like early version of email, which was basically, you know, connecting all the students, and we all used it to you know set up going out to lunch or grabbing some beers or whatever it was. It wasn't even called email then; it was called Blitzmail, and 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 involved in some organizing of students. We would bring like political people onto campus for people to come and talk to and whatever. And I was really frustrated at the time because we couldn't get that many people to show up. Um, there wasn't, there was a lot of apathy. And so we started using this technology, which was really primarily being used for social purposes, you know, maybe the occasional organization of a study group. And we started using it to build up real audience for these events that we were holding. And then um, had sort of a funnel at the time where we would we would get students on this email list. We would get them learning about the events. We would get them to show up at the events, you know, testing different things. We found that, you know, pizza was the most effective way to get a college student to come <laughs> to anything. So we'd get that in the subject line. And uh, we'd get people to show up. And then we would eventually get them to volunteer on campaigns and other things. And, and I was interested in that. And, and then, you know, left college, went to work at McKinsey. I was the eighth employee an early SaaS business that, that helped screen renters for apartments and got really interested in this SaaS delivery model. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, what if we took what we sort of learned about uh, the, the way you could transform how, you know, communications worked and engage the public, take what I learned about that in the, you know, 96 timeframe and sort of combine it with the SaaS model and bring it to governments. And we were, we got really lucky. We basically got the city of St. Paul, which is where we're located now, to agree to be our first client. And um, you know, I would say the rest is history, but what really happened is we got that first client, 
got them going sort of using an early version of our platform to build up audience and you know tell people when there was a snow emergency or other other things going on in the city um, but instead of scaling rapidly and sort of the rest is history what really happened is we sort of set out in a long slog because the dot com felt things sort of fell apart right then and it took us a while to find scale. So we had to pull a lot of levers to do that. And actually, when we got into UK and federal government in 2003, that was a little bit of a turning point. But essentially, you know, we feel like more of a high growth startup today than we did in 2001, 2002, when we were sort of in that early stage of a slog, maybe a little too early in the market. And, um, you know, so it's, it's an origin story that's almost ancient by technology terms. Mm. But what's neat is we stuck it out, learned the market, made some adjustments and adaptations along the way, and now have been grown. We've grown every year for 16 years, but have been hanging in at you know uh, an average growth rate in the high you know between 25 and 30 percent here for the last six years, which has been real exciting. Yeah, no, that's uh, that, that, that's pretty good. And uh, uh, as an understatement there, and um, uh, and and talking of scale, so I, I guess kind of you know one of the reasons. Um, you, you know, we're having this, uh, or you know, gave me the idea, um, you know, for this uh, uh, episode today was that last year Gov Delivery reached uh, an impressive milestone of 100 million users, um, uh, and, and today, I, I, you know, I thought I'd like to discuss some of the strategies, you know, behind uh, acquiring 100 million users, you know, scaling to, uh, I guess, where you are today. So, uh, does that sound good to you? Yeah, yeah, that sounds great. Um, you know, it's a uh... That was just that. That is an incredible milestone. When we look back, you know, after four or five years, we had uh, maybe a couple million, and so it really, it took a long time. And so that milestone really speaks to the fact that we're actually addressing this problem of government communicating with the public at a scale that really matters. Okay, awesome. So, and, and just I guess before we go into, uh, I guess, kind of how you acquired uh, the hundred million users and, and, and breaking that down a little bit. So, uh, Gov Delivery are a, a vertical-specific SaaS uh, uh, company. Uh, that's correct, yeah. That that's right. So, you know, anybody, you know, anybody who's listening probably is using some kind of marketing automation capability, and they, you know, the that's sort of the the newer version of what used to be called email service provider. So, there's everything from you know constant contact out there mm-hmm. to Marketo and HubSpot, and you know, all, all these different types of Things that private companies are using um, to manage their manage their digital lists and track and communicate with people to drive drive people through the pipeline, right? Well, in government, they're really th- those technologies don't apply super well because mm-hmm. a lot of the communications are things like your bus is late, mm-hmm. but then there's also communications trying to get people to show up an event or do something that maybe maps better to what a private company would want you to do, and so we we have basically. Um, we have, we are truly the sort of most widely used platform by public sector because we meet the relatively unique needs of the public sector, but we've also been able to learn and adapt things really well out of that marketing automation space. So basically just like a private company pays Marketo an annual fee or, you know, Oracle's Eloqua or the marketing cloud or whatever, uh, our clients pay us a fee to get access to our platform but they also get access to this very unique approach we have to building a user base. Okay, and uh, are they paying you? So uh, I'm assuming there is no freemium model here. Uh, they're paying you a, a monthly fee or an annual contract. 
That's right. Yeah, free, freemium's been tough for us. I, I love the freemium model in certain businesses. You know, when you're working in the public sector, sometimes giving something away is as hard as selling it. Mm -hmm. And uh, we really feel like our clients need to have skin in the game and have um, an ability to use this, you know, to take on the service um, out of the gate. And because our service is so proven in the marketplace, we've tested some freemium models. But at this point, we really, you know, if you want to try out the service, as a citizen, anyone can do that for free, right? Go out to the UK Parliament or the Highways Agency's website or the IRS here in the States and sign up and you can try it out and see how it works. If you're the actual organization, um, we'll let people take a look and try the service in a sandbox. But yeah, we, we don't do any freemium. Okay. Okay, cool. So, so let's break down this journey to 100 million users. Um, so can you talk about the growth strategies employed to get to your first million users? Sure. Um, so, so what was interesting, you know, when you go out, this is actually still a little bit the case that when you go out and talk to uh, an organization that, um, particularly a public sector organization about communications, they're very focused on the functionality of whatever capability you're bringing them. So they'll look at it and say, you know, how is this, how is this newsletter going to look? Or how is this text message going to look? How am I going to create the message? How am I going to send it out? How am I going to track it? And what we had to do early on with our first clients, which were basically small, local, relatively small to mid-sized local governments, is we had to reorient their thinking to thinking about not just how they were going to send a message, but how many people it was going to get to. Mm -hmm. The reason that mattered is that that user base that we have is really an extension of our client's user base. So the city of St. Paul has a certain number of people who visit its you know, web, web and digital properties every day. But what they're not, what they weren't doing prior to gut delivery is converting any of those users to being part of a some kind of digital subscription. And so first, we had to get our clients uh, sort of converted in their thinking to to appreciating the value of building a larger user base. And then we started testing different tools uh, that, I guess, looking back, you know, on you know back all the way to 2000, probably seem pretty elementary in today's terms. But we started testing different tools that would help our clients get more people to sign up for more things. And I'll give you a simple example um, that people may find interesting for a local government. So local government likes to, you know, when they think about what they want to communicate with people on, a lot of times it's driven by the political leaders or other leaders in the city. And so they'll think to themselves, you know, I really want to get the word out on this major initiative we have going on. Uh, economic development, or I really want to get the mayor's newsletter out to more people. Well, it turned out that the public doesn't maybe care about those two things. But then when a snowstorm hits, the public really cares about when they need to move their car off the street, when the plows are coming, you know, what the plan is for dealing with the potholes, whatever it is. And so what we've done is basically what we started testing early on is just making it really easy to get people to sign up first to what they were most interested in and then uh, start to upsell people on other content and really modeling that off of, of you know, a retail model. You know, Amazon doesn't try to sell you necessarily everything out of the gate. Mm -hmm. you, you, you search in Google, you find something you want, and then after you've bought the remote control car, they try to sell you batteries. Or after you've bought you know, one Adele album, they try to sell you another one. It's basically that same, taking that same kind of thinking in for our clients so we could use the audience they already had and drive a lot more conversion using techniques like that. Use, and then you know it evolved over time to things like overlays 
uh, and other extensions. Um, and I would only add that the, the most kind of interesting thing we found is the incredible power with our clients of cross-promotion. So whether it's the mayor cross-promoting with the snow emergencies or the city cross-promoting with the state or the you know, highways agency in the UK cross-promoting with a local authority, we actually found that creating that network effect and investing in that not only got more people signed up, but made sure they all got signed up to more stuff. Awesome, awesome. And, and, and then what, what changed then as you scaled to, to 50 million users? What were the, the kind of major differences within you know, the company, um, I guess from a sales and marketing perspective and, and I guess from, a, uh, you know, from the platform perspective as well? Yeah, yeah. So the, um, uh, the, there's a couple, there's a lot of different components of that. Um, you know, basically to scale our user base, because our user base is sort of an extension of our clients' user base, mm-hmm. the first thing you have to do is just get more, get more clients signed up. Mm-hmm. And that is really a sales and marketing problem so, or, or challenge, uh, depending on the year. And, um, you know, we went through and we really had to look at um, why were people buying our service and what value were they getting out of it? Because what happened is when we first started selling, people had a lot of extra money in local government and they would basically, they would be willing to invest in what, in our style of communication as sort of an, I didn't actually stop doing any of the print communications or anything else. They would just invest in what we were doing. Um, what happened is as budgets and government have gotten tighter, you know, got tighter and tighter and we've gone through a couple different down cycles in the economy, both here and in, in our other you know, major market, which is the UK, we found um, that we had to get much more detailed about what the return on investment was and where our clients could drive real value. And so they have these great terms. And actually, the, the, peop- the clients we have in the UK, I think, measure and talk about this stuff better than the ones over here. They talk about like avoidable contact and um, driving additional transactions online, uh, channel shift, these kinds of terms. And what they mean is, you know, avoidable contact is just communicating with somebody so they don't call the city with a question. Um, channel shift is getting somebody to do something online instead of do it by paper. So what we found to drive sales and marketing is basically getting more and more intimate with how our clients were driving real measurable value out of our service. So that was kind of the, the first shift that we had as we grew. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there's a lot of lessons you know people can take for that as they're trying to scale is actually getting intimate with the value your clients are getting really matters. But this, the uh, second interesting thing, which applies in this kind of relatively constrained market we're in is um, our clients talk to each other a lot. So you really have a lot less leeway in a vertical market on performance. You have to perform really well. And, and it can be harder to acquire clients because you're in a constrained market. So you have to have a strategy for keeping them really well. So we actually, you know, in addition to investing and in growing the business, we actually invested a lot from the very beginning in retention. And that's paid off. We've had, uh, we've, we've been able to sustain a 99% retention rate our entire history. And um, with that kind of retention, you're under less pressure, you know, to get the next client because mm-hmm. you're just not facing the kind of attrition others are facing. So that was the second thing. And the third that really matters is going after bigger and bigger clients. So basically, you know, if you're, if you're here, you know, in the U.S., obviously the city of St. Paul, Minnesota has, you know, 280,000 residents. Well, Minneapolis, which is right nearby, has 350,000. The county has another, you know, couple million. The state has 5 million. 
And then by the time we started working with federal government here and central government in the UK, you're dealing with clients that just have these massive audiences and getting the courage and building the experience to get to larger and larger uh, clients mattered a lot. So that was the sales and marketing approach. Um, I could talk about the approach we took to helping, you know, because the other lever then is helping our clients get more people signed up from their website. I talked a little bit about that before, but we did some interesting, some interesting things in that area going from the sort of one to 10 million range. Okay. Okay. I guess um, that that would be interesting to hear. And uh, I, I think before we go into that, I mean, was there, you know, much difference, you know, between scaling to 50 million, 50 million users to getting to 100 million, or is it more of the same? Was it more, you know, going after the bigger and bigger clients? Um, the the I think the most profound difference actually is in the type of team you need when you start reaching that scale. So we actually found. You know, as we as we've grown, we have the actual operational scale of the business has really shifted from one where you know we have to keep some basic functionality up and running all day to one that is very data and transaction intensive. And um, I would say that, that what really changed here is essentially operational rigor. And and I know that it's hard, you know, for a business that's just starting up. And I know this from experience. It's hard to imagine how much operational rigor you'll need when your service becomes mission critical for your clients. Um, and you know, for me, it was really about finding the right balance from that sort of you know first hundred clients, first five million users, and as we've grown up to, to this much larger client base and much larger end user base, finding the the kinds of um, talent really. To, to be leaders on our team to make sure we're bringing real operational rigor in and constantly learning uh, from our mistakes and, and even learning from mistakes we almost made um, in order to demonstrate to our clients that they can rely on us, for example, in you know emergency situations like this last weekend with a massive snowstorm on the East Coast. Mm. You know, when you're, when you're a little side note, little web app, um, I think you take for granted that your service can be down for a little while or something can go wrong or you can test new functionality and have it not work. The fact is, you know, for us as we've scaled, the operational rigor uh, and the criticality of our service just means that we, keep, we don't have that luxury anymore. So we actually had to de- design ways of testing things in stage, making it easier to beta test and other things in order to both innovate and have this operational rigor together. And I will say that wasn't my skill set. So I had to go seek talent to bring that rigor into the business. And, and if we couldn't have done that, you know, the IRS isn't, wouldn't have used our service, right? <laughs> okay. so, so we had to, we had to basically, you know, stop thinking you want to, you want to be sort of 50% lean startup and, uh, you know, 50% the, you know, the, um, bank of America, and it's tricky to both innovate and have that kind of rigor at the same time. That was really the big, big shift as the user base grew. I, I guess it sort of leads sort of nicely into, I guess, kind of question that sort of just popped into my mind in terms of as you've, you've scaled to 100 million users and uh, a company of the size of, you know, 250 uh, employees, how has your role as, you know, CEO, uh, you know, and, and co-founder of Gov Delivery changed from, you know, being this startup acquiring its first users to, to where you are today, you know, what have been the kind of major shifts and major changes? Um, you know, the, I think the primary shift is that you're, when, when I started, you know, I was 24 and I had just come out of McKinsey and a pretty good startup experience. So I naturally thought I was better 
at doing everything than anybody else could be because I had that, you know, incredible two years of experience or whatever it was at the time. And, and, um, I think I, hopefully, um, hopefully your audience understands sarcasm. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, so. Um, but, uh, but, but, you know, really I, I spent the first part of working on the business. We were very lean and we took a lot of risk, but we also relied heavily on just a couple co-founders and their talents and energy to drive different things. And I think the shift the the most important shift that I went through as a leader is basically to start relying more on my judgment than on my output um, as a leader and uh, basically invest a lot more of my time in getting the right people doing the right things and making sure that the, the talent I was hiring was better at what I was asking them to do than I was. And uh, I can tell you, it took a couple couple different rounds and there's been different iterations over the 16 years, but that has been the biggest shift. And so now I've got really my investment of time is really three parts. Um, it's about one third talent, you know, just dealing with the people I have here, making sure they're going in the right direction, they're in the right role, they're getting opportunities they need, finding new amazing people to work with. We hired 70 people last year. You know, they're, they're, you got to make all 70 of those moves count as much as possible. And then the second third is really working on product and strategic direction and being a contributor, being involved um, in that. Um, I sort of wrap into that strategic direction product side of things, you know, all of the dealing with my board and owners and all that kind of stuff that, that you naturally have to do as a CEO. And then the other third, if I'm having a good year, and uh, this doesn't work every year, but the other third is I try to get real uh, intimacy with our clients. And so I... I think um, last year I didn't quite hit my mark, but I try to do 100 in-person meetings with existing clients and potential clients every year. And uh, it's a little easier for me to do because my client base is pretty concentrated in places like London and state capitals and Washington, D.C. But um, I need that kind of intimacy with the clients in order to lead the kind of team we have here. And so I've shifted from you know making PowerPoints, building flowcharts, building, you know, uh, use cases and other things to feed into product and doing sales pitches and whatever, which is sort of that early stage of being an entrepreneur to this more, you know, stage where I'm trying to, I'm trying to spend my time and I have the most leverage, which is really talent, strategic direction and understanding the client base. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. And, and so, you know, what, what are the key takeaways, you know, from your journey to hundred million users, uh, last year, um, you know, for, for the B2B SaaS founders uh, that are predominantly, you know, listening uh, and especially the, the early stage uh, folks uh, as well. So, you know, what, what kind of, you know, key takeaways that can you give, um, you know, to those that, uh, that are listening at home? You know, um, you've, you've probably seen what I've seen over the last, you know, five years, which is that there's a lot of very uh, technology oriented, product oriented founders, which I think is an amazing you know, this sort of product first movement within technology is really exciting and, and it's drawn it's drawn technologists into founding companies in a way that's really exciting. You know, back in two thousand there were a lot of people like me who are just sort of business dudes doing uh, software and then we'd kinda hire out and, and find find people to work on technology with us. I, I think um, in some cases these product driven, technology driven founders have uh, have overinvested in a sort of inside out version of the world where they sort of build their product and 
I think it's great to build and put it out there and take the lean approach. I think that the thing they sometimes miss, and I heard this great quote the other day um, from a guy in Chicago, which is they sometimes miss that it, a good product is often just the shadow of a problem. And well, I talked about you know how I spend more time, you know, this third of my time with clients now. I've I've always invested a lot of time just sitting with clients, looking at how they're using our service, not just asking them, not just giving them surveys or whatever, but sitting with them and seeing how they use it and really understanding it. And we encourage all of our people to do the same thing. I think that really matters. I actually think some of the best innovation doesn't come by asking your clients what the next feature is they want, but by trying to understand the real problems they face and what it's like for them, what kind of pain it's causing, and then uh, working to kind of engineer it against that versus um, just throw something out that you personally think is elegant and make it work. Now, there's, there's a balance, right? I love the fact that people are building products they love to use themselves and all those things. But for us, at least, that intimacy with the market has mattered. And I've seen in the startups I've invested in and looked at, the ones that spend the most time talking to their clients at a more intimate level and watching how they're using the service seem to do better. Awesome. Awesome insights there. Thank you for that, uh, Scott. And um, so I guess kind of last question as we come in uh, to the, the, the end of the show, um, uh, you, you know, what's next for, for, for Gov Delivery this year? Have you set your, your sales guys, you know, the targets say, okay, we're at 100 million or, you know, we've passed that uh, 100 million users, that is, you know, now we want 200 million or, you know, how does it work? Um, you know, because the user base tends to come off the client base, we're very focused on the, you know, just growing the that client base of government clients so we get access to more users. We, uh, The first thing we've done over the last couple of years is sort of shift from talking about ourselves as a strictly communications platform. We've basically been investing in and helping our clients on the full um, citizen experience, you know, just like, just like you might talk about customer experience if you're, you know, selling to private sector. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to do more broadly across the citizen experience. And what does that mean? You know, it means a reminder to show up to your medical appointment or a reminder to get your car off the street or a personal reminder to pay your taxes or whatever it is, getting more, more individualized and helping our clients deploy things that look maybe communications that look more like Uber and Amazon than like you would typically expect from government. So we've invested in some add-on capabilities, a lot of engineering around some solutions around that. And even uh, last year did a few acquisitions to build out functionality in, in the data area and learning all kinds of things. So basically more complete focus against the citizen experience is one. And then the second is I'm just growth driven. I just feel like, you know, it, I, I would love to be part of a business that can grow 50 or 100 percent a year in our market. Um, we find that, you know, striving for 25 percent plus is a, is a realistic goal for us. But I think you, you've got to grow to be getting the best talent in technology and to be able to afford to innovate at the level you want. You know, huge war for talent going on out there. And the best people want to work at companies that are growing and innovating. So when we talk to the sales team, it's not just about them hitting their revenue numbers. It's about them. If they don't hit their revenue numbers, I can't get the talented engineers I want. And so we just, uh, we're very focused on leveraging the success we've had building our big citizen user base to get more clients to basically create a virtuous cycle, get more clients, get more users, help the, help the clients share the users and sort of cross-promote. And, and that virtuous cycle hopefully keeps us at 25% growth because if you're not growing fast, you know, you're, you're not going to make it to the next stage. Well, Scott, uh, you know, I have to say, sort of on, on that note, obviously, you know, well, con 
congratulations on the uh, on, on the great growth you know the 25 percent sort of year on year and you, you know reaching that milestone of 100 million users uh, you know sort of mighty impressive you, you you're doing a great job there and uh, perhaps you know it, it's not as uh, uh, you know heralded as uh, maybe some of those in uh, in Silicon Valley but the you, you know the story uh, and what you've achieved is uh, is very impressive and um, you know hopefully there's a lot of learnings there for the uh, for the listeners uh, at home so thanks for uh, being a guest on the show today Oh, thanks for having me. You're, you're welcome. And, and listeners at home, if you liked uh, uh, this episode of the SaaS Revolution Show, we'd really appreciate if you uh, rated and reviewed us on iTunes. We'll 2016, Europe's premier B2B SaaS conference, targeting early to growth stage SaaS founders and a global VC community on the 22nd of September at the RDS in Dublin. Early birds tickets are available now at www.sastock.com. That's S-A-A-S-T-O-C-K dot com.